up your cell phone, show it to me as you turn it off or turn on to vibrate mode. I have asked a special guest to introduce our speaker today. How are we doing back there, Grendel? How are we doing back there, Grendel? Okay. So um, our special guest introducer is Karen Hepner. Um, Karen, I don't have your whole bio, so I'm just, I made up a few things about you. But I know you're an overachiever, so I, I, but I, I will just say a few words that Karen is a local resident, lives in the University Park area, and has been working, um, how many years have you been here? 12 years, has been working to broaden opportunities for um, women within the local Orthodox community. I wanted to give her the covote and the honor to introduce our speaker today. So with that and with your phones off, I invite Karen to come up to the microphone uh, and introduce our speaker, who is my Monty's graduate and was about two years behind me. And that's all I will say about her. So thank you all and thank you, Karen. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you, Ari, and the Community Scholars Program for the privilege of introducing our distinguished speaker today, Rabbi Rachel Berkowitz. Um, I first laid eyes on Rachel in her pre-rabbinic state um, across a crowded Beit Midrash in uh, Israel over 20 years ago in a progressive modern Orthodox women's yeshiva, um, at which time Rachel was already beginning to achieve celebrity status for her brilliant mind and her dedication to Torah learning. And although our yeshiva, Midrash at Lindenbaum, was dedicated to the most in-depth and rigorous Talmudic and Jewish textual learning, and even perhaps many of us had a vision for what would be possible for our daughters and our granddaughters, uh, perhaps our great-granddaughters, um, down in many years later, I don't think a single one of us, perhaps not even Rachel herself, um, believed that orthodox smicha for women was going to be possible in our lifetime, let alone to be achieved by someone who was learning in our midst. However, in the June of 2015, a historic moment in Jewish history, Rachel completed her studies and received ordination at Beit Midrash Harel, forever changing the future for women in Judaism across the world. Originally from Boston, Rabbi Berkowitz has been living in Israel for over 20 years with her family, where she teaches Mishnah, Talmud, and Halacha at the Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies. Um, she spent many years studying Talmud and Jewish texts in both traditional and academic frameworks um, at Midrash at Lindenbaum, as I said, the Shalom Hartman Institute at Hebrew University in both the Talmud and Jewish education departments. She lectures widely in both Israel and abroad on topics concerning women and Jewish law and has published entries in the City Jewish Women, a comprehensive historical encyclopedia. Rabbi Berkowitz is the editor-in-chief and halachic editor of Tashma, which is the halachic source guide series for Jofa, which is um, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, an organization very dear to my heart. She published a book, uh, A Daughter's Recitation of Mourner's Kaddish. My own war-torn copy is right here. And if you, in addition to her brilliant words, you can see everything that I ate for 11 months while I was saying Kaddish. Um, she is a founding member of Congregation Shira Hadasha, a progressive halachic minion, which is enriched by both male and female participation in synagogue ritual. Today, Rabbi Berkowitz will be speaking about Darche Shalom, the path to building community. It is truly an honor to invite you to the podium before this crowd, including my own daughters, Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Rachel Berkowitz. 
Lovely. What a lovely introduction. Hi, thank, thank you for such a warm welcome. Um, one of the main things I do actually is I teach Torah at a place called Pardes. I don't know how many people are familiar with Pardes, but it's a, it's a learning institution in Jerusalem in which the student body is made up of Jews from across the denominational spectrum. So I'm used to having in my classroom people who grew up reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist, everything. And my, uh, that's something that's very dear to my heart, the idea that Jews of all different backgrounds coming together to learn together, So, which I feel is similar to probably what we have in this room. So I, I feel very pleased and honored to have been invited to, um, to join you in your study series. Um, what I want to do with you today is study some Mishnah. I know that might sound a little bit either daunting or maybe a little boring, um, because Mishnah, I personally believe, gets a short shift. It, it is something that, at least in the traditional Orthodox world, kids learn when they're like in first grade, maybe fourth grade, um, and then you go on to like bigger and better things and you study Talmud when you get older. But I love, love, love studying Mishnah. It was codified in the year 2000 in Israel, and it's, what's beautiful about it for me is that it is an edited work and therefore, um, what I love to learn about it is to look at um, sort of the literary motifs, the thematic motifs that appear in the Mishnah. And most people think of Mishnah as sort of the basis for Jewish law. But for me, I believe it really is a window into the theology and philosophy of the rabbis of that time period. And so I think it has a lot of important message that are still resonate with us today. And I want to share that with you. So that's my plan for this time period. Um, I'm hap I hope we're going to have like conversation and interaction. Um, so the mission that I would like to look at you is uh, with you is actually two mishnayot from Tractate Gitim, which is divorce law. But what's fascinating is that in the middle of this tractate, it's a tractate that is nine chapters long. Um, there are two chapters smack in the middle that actually have nothing to do with divorce law. And there's a unit that have um, mishnayot that talk about a phrase that I'm sure you're all familiar with. Tikkun olam, fixing the world, rectifying the world, right? It's a very hip and modern thing, I imagine, out here in California, everywhere in the world. Um, you know, it sort of is our motif for social justice. Um, and there's these two chapters that are a collection of Mishnayot that deal with this topic. And the very last two Mishnayot at the end of the fifth chapter deal with a subset of Tikkun olam that is Darkei Shalom. The refrain, Darkei Shalom, the pathways to peace and the interests are peace. And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at these two Mishnayot. Now, what's fascinating is why is this unit stuck in the middle of divorce law? So I think that the reason for this is that obviously, unfortunately, divorce is when um, human interaction breaks down. And what's supposed to be a loving human unit um, has not been successful. And usually, there's probably a lot of pain, anger, hurt that happens. And I think that part of the message of putting the tikkun olam and the darkei shalom in the midst of divorce law is a message that the rabbis want to say about what, how do we solve the breakdown of human interaction, not just particularly a marriage, but in that intimate face, uh, in that intimate unit, when we have it break down, it must have to do with how the people are acting for, between one another. And so they use this as, a, as an opportunity to discuss 
um, something about human interaction in general. I once tried to figure out, it's a little bit hard because the way we have the Mishnah now is not exactly the same as when it was edited. It's very close, right? There, I told you there's nine chapters in Masachet Gitin, and th we're talking about four and five, so it's smack in the center that we have this thing about fixing the world and human interaction. And Masachet Gitin is very close to the middle of the entire six orders of the Mishnah. I don't know if it, I can get it perfectly because the way the chapters were originally edited, but it's very close. I would love to believe that this is actually the core kernel of all of rabbinic law, um, is these chapters talking about how human beings can repair the world and how we can repair human interaction. Um, and so um, I really believe that one of the main messages, I'll say it from the outright, is that one of the ways that we create justice in this world is to think about how we interact with other people. So that's what I want to show you, um, begadol, in, in sort of big, and we're going to look at it in specific, okay? So everyone should have a sheet with this one mission on the front and a second mission on the back. Please stop me if you don't understand something or you want to ask a question. The first thing I want to show you is that it's clearly a literary unit. Um, the, the Mishnah opens, I'm going to read in Hebrew and translate, but anyone who wants to look in the internet, it says, Elu dvarim amru shalom. Right? These are the things that they, they means the rabbi, said in the interest of peace. So that's your opening statement. And then what you're going to see is uh, over the course of these two Mishnayot, they're going to list 10 things. Whenever you have 10, you know that there's like an edited unit. And after each one, the refrain repeats itself because they want to emphasize it. So if you look at the end of one, two, I mark them. It, uh, each law says, Mibnei Darkei Shalom, Mibnei Darkei Shalom, Mibnei Darkei Shalom, right? These are words that get emphasized over and over. And if you flip the page <coughs> towards the end of Mishnah 2, it's not the last lines of Mishnah 2, and we're going to talk about this, but it's like the second, right before number 10, it says, Kulan lo amru elam ibne darkei shalom. Right? And all these have only been said in the interest of peace. So even though you might have, I don't know what you learned about Mishnah, that it's written tersely and it's written shortly, the rabbis did not spare words of repeating over and over and over again that these things are said in the interest of peace because it's clearly very, very important to them. So we see, when you see 10 examples with a beginning and an end, it's a clearly edited unit. So we need to see what things they chose, what are the 10 examples that they chose, and some of them are going to be somewhat obvious, some of them are going to seem very abstract, and we have to figure out why these 10 things, right? Because we could make lists of hundreds of places where human interaction breaks down and you need to repair it. Um, and the question is, why did the rabbis choose these 10 examples to share with us when they want to teach us this important lesson? Okay, so that's our goal today, to try to figure out what's going on here. What I would love to do, which I hope is going to be okay for you, I would like you to take five minutes, this is what we do at Pardes, I think it's important, turn to your partner, not read it to yourself, and read through this first Mishnah, right? What you see here on page, five, uh, page one. You could read it in English, you could read it in Hebrew, and just see what the examples are. You don't have to understand every single thing. And we'll take five minutes. And the idea is to talk, not to read to yourself. Okay? Does everyone have a text?
Take two more seconds to finish up and then we're going to talk about it because most some people are finished. it's okay we're gonna do it together some of the examples I know were a little difficult to understand what's going on but it's always good to just jump in and see okay it's I, I'm gonna explain everything if, if some of them were confusing but um, I just wanted you to see that they're very varied right and they might not have been what you would expect to be on the list at all right the first one you probably did expect right number one on the list were Jews fight synagogue I'm sure not in, not in the synagogues here, but in other places, Jews fight about things that go on in the synagogue. Um, so number one was somewhat clear. It's something, you, I don't know if in all synagogues, I don't know, in synagogues that still have the hierarchy of the priesthood, this is still done till today, right? It's about how do I know who's going to get which aliyah, right? And that is definitely something that you could imagine people could fight about. Right? They only define the first three aliyot. I've been in synagogues where after that, people still fight about it. But, um, but, and what's interesting, I don't know how much time you had to talk about it, they, they, they affix a hierarchy to cause no infighting. Right? You might have thought you could say, like, let's take turns, let's uh, you know, keep a rotation. Here, the solution, and because we don't have a lot of time, we can't talk about everything, but that's something we could talk about. Which of these examples, the way they cause sort of the stability into the community, some of it is by saying this is how it's going to be and having a ruling that Kohen is always going to go first and Levi is always going to go second and then after that Israel, um, which might not be in the modern day how we would want it, but definitely does, when you have rules, I guess teachers here know, when you have real clear rules in a classroom, there's more order. So 
Example number one is an example about Torah reading in the community, and they affix a clear hierarchy of how it's going to work. Right? So implication is people used to fight about this. We institute this law, less fighting. That's example number one. Example number two is a very hard example to, to understand. I could have explained it to you. This is talking about an Aruv, but not if you've heard of an Aruv, not about the, it's not an Aruv like that enables you to carry in a whole town. It's about if you've ever been in Israel, they had these like courtyards where on the same courtyard you'd have a number of different little houses. And so everyone owns their own house, but they have a joint chatzer, a joint courtyard. And the question is, if they want to carry on Shabbat, because there's a prohibition of carrying from one domain to the other, in this courtyard, the way they made themselves a joint unit, this is very typically Jewish, they would have a joint meal together. By eating together, they established a, a unity. And so the rule here is, who gets to be the hosts of the meal? Who, who, who has the food of the meal? And here it says the house, that, the old house, but meaning the house that always did it gets to do it. Right? Once again, not a rotation. Um, here the, a lot of the commentaries try to ask, like, what, what, would, what would be the fighting? Like, what's the prestige of, of being the host? It could be the prestige. One of the Maimonides suggests that if you were the host, you didn't have to put into the pot. Other people paid and then you hosted, so there was an advantage to being the host <laughs> and that people would fight about it. But it seems to be something about Shabbat ritual amongst communities that causes fighting. That's example number two. Example number three is something that if we're not agriculture, you have, you have agriculture, you have oranges here. I don't know. <laughs> um, we don't, you don't have water. Okay. So here the case is there's a natural, some type of aqueduct, um, there's some body of water, and I'm a farmer, I have my field, right? And I want to fill up my reservoir, my cistern to irrigate my field, and I have to um, dam up the body of water so that I can divert it into my cistern. And so if a lot of people are using this water source, there can be fighting. If I dam up my area, then the water doesn't get to you while well, I've dammed it up. But I need to dam it up to get water. So once again, there is a hierarchy in force. And this, my, my students always are disturbed by this one because it sort of gives the strongest one. The person who's closest to the water source gets to use the water source first. And they're, they're always like, well, it's the people that are farther away that need help. But that's what the mission decides. So we have synagogue, we have houses, we have water sources. And then we get to three examples that take a slightly different turn. And you saw that there was a dispute about this. Rabbi Yossi disagrees. And these all are about how to acquire things. Okay? In Jewish law, the way you acquire something is that you have cognizance and you take the thing into your domain. Right? If we were to do a deal, right, and I, you wanted to sell me your cow and I was going to pay for it, the way we know that the transaction had been finalized is I take the cow that's in your domain and I bring it into my domain. And that's how I acquire something according to Jewish law. But the case that is in example number four is a kind of interesting case. I am a, a trapper, a, 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 what, what would we call this person? What's the? Uh, hunter, hunter, that's the word, hunter. Um, and I'm setting traps in, in the woods, in the wilds, in the streams. Right? So I lay a trap for an animal, and then I go away. Now, an animal gets caught in my trap. Okay? Now you, person number two, walks along and says, oh, look, some fish in a trap. That's great. I can have fish for lunch. And you take the fish out of my trap. So legally, I didn't ever, I, the trapper, 
they never acquired those fish because I never took them into my domain. I did all the hard work of seeing like where does the salmon come and I put my nets and I did all the work, but I've actually, they don't actually belong to me. So when someone else, person number two, comes and takes the fish, they're not actually, according to Torah law, stealing from me. How do I feel? How does the hunter feel? Stolen from. Pretty darn angry. I did all this work and someone took my stuff. Right? And so that is the case that is under discussion here. And the anonymous first voice says, the anonymous first voice says, you, person number two, don't take from other people's traps. Right? It's like stealing. It's not legal stealing. Right? It uses an interesting phrase. It's mishum gezel. It's similar to. It's like kind of like it. And the reason you don't do it is not because it's stealing, because it's not nice. People in the interest of peace don't take from other people's traps. Rabbi Yossi comes and disagrees, and he says, what are you talking about? Don't tell me like the technicality of, of Jewish law, right, that you have to acquire it. It's stealing, right? That's what he says. Gezel Gamor. It's stealing. Don't, right? He, he, they both agree that you shouldn't do it. But their reasoning is different. One is it's in the interest of peace, and one is it's stealing. What would be the practical difference between the two of them? Does anyone have a thought about that? Technicality. Technicality. You said penalty. What does technicality mean? Right. So let's say I took from your trap. According to the first opinion, you trapper. Right. And so now you're angry at me. Do you have any recourse against me? You could just go, that really wasn't very nice, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like you very much. I'm angry. But according to Rabbi Yossi, what could happen? He could stole. You could go to court. You could try to get it back. There could be a penalty, right? So there's a thing. From the, from the feel of it, they seem very similar. But from the practicality, they're very, very, very different. Yes? Okay, that, that's a little bit more complicated, but if I don't know that, there, then there would be trespassing issues, but I don't, in general, we don't think that animals that move belong to the people who they move through. Um, but uh, that is a slightly more technical question that gets into, like, how do I relate to other people? It's a good question. Um, <coughs> but, uh, okay, so that is case number four. Case number five, completely different case, but also linked to acquiring. Um, another very important halakha about how I acquire something is I need to have cognizance to do it, right? Which in general, for legal transactions, I have to have cognizance. And the halakha has a category of three people that the halakha thinks lack cognizance. Those three people are minors, right? That's, you guys decided your bat mitzvah, but not, before that, you weren't in fully developmentally, that's why we don't hold you responsible for your actions, and you are not your obligation towards doing mitzvot, right? That's what it means, right? So on the cusp of 12, not so much. But you understand a two-year-old lacks cognizance. A five-year-old lacks a certain level of cognizance. So those are ketanim. A shote is someone who is mentally handicapped, who has a mental disability. And cherish is a bit harder to understand, but it, which is the modern word for someone who's hearing impaired. But in the time period of the Mishnah, many people who are hearing impaired were also mute. And because they didn't know how to talk, the rabbis didn't know what was going on in their brains. And they thought, unfortunately, that they were also mentally handicapped. Halakha in that area has developed, and now, of course, we understand that if your hearing appeared does not mean anything about your brain. But um, these are three people. Now, here's what plays out. The, 
normally we say that these people can't do legal transactions, and that's normally to protect them. Right? We don't want people to swindle them and, and, and try to sell them something or steal from them, and they don't fully understand the consequences. So normally this category of people can't do legal transactions. But the case under discussion here is someone loses $100. I am a nine-year-old kid. I find it. I pick it up, and I'm like, great, 100 bucks. You already come along and go, whoop, and you take it from me. Because, because legally, as a nine-year-old child, I didn't acquire it. It's not mine, right? And therefore, when you take from me, you're legally not stealing from me. How will I feel? Very angry. I'll feel stolen from. I'll feel hurt. I'll be, right? If you, found, if you were 10 and found $100 and some adult just came and took it from you, you'd be pretty angry, right? <laughs> and so once again, we're in the realm of stealing. So found objects that these category of people who have a mental handicap find, if you take it from them, once again, the anonymous first voice says, it's like stealing, meaning don't do it in the interest of peace. We want to have nice interaction with people. And Rabbi Yossi comes again and says, no, that is stealing. You can't do it. Yes? Yeah, I, I read that text differently. I read it not as if someone taking it from the dead but yeah. rather the deaf mute or the handicapped person takes that, that property. No, but it says yeah. mitziot, the, the things found by them. Yeah, anything found by a deaf mute, a mentally disabled person yep. or minor, is counted as a kind of robbery. No, but, but found, lost objects that are found, meaning a $100 bill is, the assumption is the owner's given up hope of finding it. It doesn't have any... It, all $100 bills look the same. It doesn't have any simanim. It doesn't have any identifying uh, things that it belongs to you. So in general, lost objects like that, the owner acquires them by finding them. But, but it's in general, way. taking anything from a deaf mute or a handicapped person or someone that's disadvantaged is a form of robbery. Nahon, correct. Here, for a particular reason, it's, it's saying that Th that, 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 I think in some ways that's an, a more obvious case. Here they're trying to get the, the subtleties, right? This $100 bill is on the floor. It's, it's finders keepers. Whoever grabs it first normally, it would belong to them, right? It happens to be that I, the 10-year-old, grab it first, and then halakhically, because I can't acquire, you can pull it out of my hand. So it really has the feel, the example has the feel of you taking directly something from me. You're asking why didn't it say about it in general? That I don't have an answer. For, but that's the case that's under discussion. I think it, it creates more, I, to me, it, it, it gets you a feeling of the, of the shock and the horror and the feeling I first had excitement of finding something and then the loss I feel when someone takes that out of my hands and the upset and the pain I might have from it. Yeah? So the way he's presented in the Mishnah, in general, whenever you have an anonymous voice and then someone by name, the anonymous voice usually represents the position of the majority. And then, and then we say, Rabbi X, that's why I'm naming him by name, is the minority. It actually happens to me, if you trace the halakha, that the halakha is like Rabbi Yossi in this, in this case. But the way it's being presented, he's a minority voice, at the, the way we're reading it like now. Okay. Um, Next example, another somewhat similar example, but slightly different, right? Remember, to acquire something, you have to take it in your hand. 
The way you glean olives, I've never done this, but I've seen people do this, is it's a rather somewhat short tree. You take a stick and the upper branches, you hit it like this and you spread a blanket down below and the olives fall down and then you gather up the blanket. You don't pick them one by one by one like that. Okay, so a poor person has bothered to do all the work. He spread, or he or she has spread his blanket. They've been slamming the tree and the olives are falling down and then Person X comes along and says, oh, look, look at all these great olives, and picks them up and takes them. Okay? Now, remember, the assumption that I, I think of the Mishnah is because it's a poor person, it's, it's a tree that doesn't belong to anyone, or possibly it's designated specifically for the poor that they left the stuff on the top, right? <coughs> and the, person, the poor person has not acquired it yet because they haven't taken it into their domain. Another example, though, where they've done a lot of hard work, same, um, same machloket. The anonymous voice says it's like stealing in the interest of peace so you don't get anger another person. Don't take them. And Rabbi Yossi says you're stealing if you take this person's hard work. Okay, that was example number six. And now we have example number seven that continues the theme of poor people but expands it a little. Right? The Torah makes, um, takes into consideration how the Jewish community should take care of its poor. Right? When, when most people were agricultural farmers, there are three different halachot that a farmer has to take into consideration, leaving the corner of their field unharvested for the poor. If you um, drop things along the way, you're not allowed to pick them up to leave them for the poor. And even like you do a sort of first harvest, but the, what's left on the, the plants you have to leave for the poor. And that is the Torah taking care of the Jewish community. This halacha says, if non-Jewish poor come, we let them. We don't prevent them. Right? In the interest of peace. Okay? And that is the first seven examples. We're going to see at, when we read our second Mishnah that both of the Mishnayot are going to end with laws having to do with non-Jews, which is very important to me. I think the Rebbe's want to say something very important about this. Um, and they say that you have to allow the non-Jewish poor to, <coughs> to collect. And those are, we're in the middle, those are the first seven examples. Anyone have any? I know you didn't have a lot of time to think about it. You, you have a question? Yeah? An idea. An idea. Great. That's what I want. I, the, I want you to think about why these examples. Yes? So I think that, it, that uh, these examples show uh, there are a very diverse range of uh, cases, but they all have to do, they're all rooted in respect. That number one is respect of his vote. The fact that people would fight about, no, I want to read the Torah. They're not supposed to fight about it, but the fact is, is that it's something that is, it, it's something that is good to do in general. And number two is respect of property. That uh, that you want your property to, you want to be able to carry your property or whatever. And number three is respect of, of agriculture and plants and uh, the fact that plants are alive and plants are a form of life. Number four is uh, perhaps respect of fellow workers or people that you know aren't very different from you. Number five is of course respect of the disabled. Number six is gotta be respect of the poor. And number seven is probably uh, respect of the non-Jews. What's your name? Eve. Eve. I love what you're saying. I, I thought something similar. 
I, I think there's lots of things to think. I'm going to show you what I thought, but you're right. I think you're right on target. Yes. I'm troubled by number seven, the, the justification in the interest of peace. Yeah. Rather, it would say more in the interest of justice or the interest of compassion or something. I understand one and two are the interest of peace because it has to do with honors, such as the LEO. But here, we're talking about serving food or you know, leanings for other people. Um, well, to me, in some ways, there's a fine line between justice and peace. Meaning, I, I think the idea here is we as a Jewish community have set up, set up uh, sort of structures to take care of our own. And if other poor people come in, they might say, like, what are you doing? Like, it could be fighting amongst the poor themselves. And we say, no. We, you know, it could be go downstairs, you know, go over to the, you know, the church's soup kitchen and they'll take care of you. But we care about how the other person's going to feel, how they're going to, um, should it be justice? Why would it be more justice? Fairness. Well, I think here that, that maybe you think it's fair that we should take care of the whole world, but I think there's an assumption that we set up structures for our particular community and you're not part of our community, but we're going to still allow you to come. Yes. Uh-huh. The, the, water. the water one, yeah. I didn't, I didn't remember them all by heart. Yeah. Trustless, yes. What do you want to add? So something I think, the whole thing um, talks about the interest of peace. So we have, we have laws. We have the letter of the law. We have the spirit of the law. So yeah, technically I might not be breaking a law. I might just be doing what, I, what I'm what i legally allowed to do, but it's just, it's not a nice thing. Like you kept saying, it's not nice. And part of being in a community is knowing when to just kind of hold back and say, okay, I'll allow this to happen, even though technically I can get up and say something and start a lawsuit and do all those things that create bad feelings, or I can just step back, it's not that big of a deal, and just kind of let life go on. Or the opposite, when I could step up, right? Meaning it could be, you know, this is legal, just let it happen even though it's not so nice, or I could say something and, and behave in a certain way. Um, what you say is very important, and maybe I didn't emphasize it. Both of these two chapters with Tikkun Olam and Darkei Shalom are chapters where the rabbis do something very, very interesting, where the legal letter of the law is something, right? The Torah, we just had Shavuot, the Torah says something, and they're fixing, right? The word Tikkun means to fix. They're fixing something or changing something or saying, you know, like we look at the legal law, and really you could steal from a young child or a men mentally handicapped person, and, but that's not so nice. Right? And so they have to they make a change to the Torah law. Yeah. So but I think you mentioned it. These are all in many of the examples we think that it's abhorrent, like why would you ever do that? But it must have happened a lot. So the rabbis must have looked around at their communities and been, I would say, either disgusted or really upset because to have to say this, most people in this room would never do any of these things. I mean, maybe the first three are economic <laughs> issues, but I don't see people stealing money, you know, taking money from kids or stealing some traps. Um, I mean, they're bigger issues. You probably I think there are lots of all them. Maybe I, these are maybe. examples. I don't know whether they were doing this a lot in their communities, and that's why these are specific examples. Or they chose examples that that really have um, other implications in the broader. My uh, my guess is probably it was happening. I think it also has broader implications. But I think the phenomenon of someone sort of in their religious life, sort of saying, "I'm going to just sort of do what the letter of the law is," and not taking into account 
the sort of meta idea of what the law is, and therefore we, we know many religious people who aren't the nicest or most moral people, and I think it's speaking to the, I think this is what it's speaking to. I mean, maybe you have a nicer view of what people are like. So we might not, uh, um, no, I, no, I think I just, that I children get abused still in this world, and, uh, and, and from a work ethic perspective, I think that people take other people's stuff. I, I think that, that happens saying, a lot. These particular things yeah. must have happened a lot. The first few, you, you can understand happened right. a lot because they're economic fights. But the right. next four seem, they're just a little surprising they happened, but they must have happened a lot. Right. I think they definitely must have happened. I want to argue, like Eve was suggesting, that there's also a, a picture being painted here. I, I, I look at the diagram. What's very interesting to me about, let's say, if you look at the first few examples, is it really paints the picture of the community, right? You have your synagogue at your core. Those are the people you have the same belief systems with. Then we talked about the homes and the courtyards. Those surround the synagogue. Then we get to the fields, right? That would be surrounding the homes. And then we get to the forests and the lakes where the trappers are, right? And that would be, that. This is a, these are specific examples, but they, paint you a picture of a, of a town, of a Jewish community, and where people would live. And then if you look at the people, who are the people in your neighborhood, right? What's very, very interesting is, right, once again, you have your prayer community or your, your core people that you think similarly to. You have your neighbors, you have people who are, you're sharing the resource which you're working with. They're people maybe who are in the same field as you in the forest, but you don't see them. And then what I think is a majorly important message from this Mishnah is we have all these people that are normally marginalized, right? The disabled, minors, um, the poor, non-Jews, who you might not necessarily think as being part of your core community in the same way the people you go to shul are, right? Or the Kohanim and the Levim are. But this Mishnah is coming to teach you that the way I treat a Kohen and the way I treat a disabled person and the way I treat a non-Jew the same law applies. And to me, that is majorly important. So I think that they maybe took examples that, and wanted to specifically single out these people because it's not by chance, I think, that these people have all the end of the Mishnah mentions these people. So now we have a description, a physical description of what the Jewish community looks like and of, of how a town is built. And then we have a description of who makes up your, your community. And a, and a very strong statement by the Mishnah saying, and by the way, these are people in your community, and the respect that you treat them with, and consideration for their feelings, in some ways to me this is quite progressive, right? We're talking the year 200. To think about the fact that a disabled person has feelings, can feel hurt, and can feel upset, and who cares what the technical letter of the law about the Torah says about them? There's a person standing in front of you who's been hurt, and you need to think about how you interact with them. Right? And those same feelings as you treated the people who you daven with, who you're in your synagogue, you're going to apply to the non-Jewish poor. Um, and those are very important messages. So we went from the first example, right, for people who have the same beliefs as you, you're in synagogue with them, to non-Jews at the end who are people who have completely different belief systems than you. And the, and the theme is the same throughout. I need to interact with people with the motive of shalom. And shalom to me means not fighting, but I think it's another level because of every one of the examples they gave had to do with how people feel. I'm going to feel stolen from. I'm going to feel hurt. I'm going to feel that you violated my, 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 my integrity as a person and that I need to take that into consideration. Flip the page now. Um, Mishnah 2 also deals with Darkei Shalom. 
What's very interesting is this Mishnah appears word for word in another place in the Mishnah. It appears in Masachet Shvi'it because the first law has to do with the sabbatical year. So anytime you see a Mishnah is quoted two times in two different places, right? So you already know that it's not the technical law I need because if I only need the technical law, I got it when it was quoted the first time. So it, it has to be adding something being brought here again that's ever like on top of the technical law that is going to help us with this theme that the Mishnah has been talking about. And so what's interesting here, I told you, I described to you these beautiful things, your community, every person in the community, right? The one person that was missing from those first few examples in the community was the woman, right? We had no mention of women. But Mishnah number two here that we're going to look at um, has almost all the examples. There are going to be two examples about women and another example about non-Jews. And the two examples about women are going to be very domestic. It's going to be about women and cooking and women in their home, which um, in some ways I would say is a stereotype. But I think here actually, and I don't think this is apologetics, the rabbis are bringing it to show you as a microcosm of, of community. It's, we're going to see these women have friends in the community and they have a lot of interaction and go between for them. So let's look at this. We don't have a lot of time, so maybe we'll just do it together. Um, very interesting cases. I said, we ended with the non-Jew before who has a different belief system than us, okay? And that's understanding. They're not part of the Jewish community. They're, they're non-Jews. But this Mishnah, shockingly enough, deals with Jews within the community who have different levels of observance, right? You might have thought that was a modern phenomenon. It's not. The Mishnah knows about it. So case number one is, a woman borrows from her friend, right? And it uses the word chaverta, her friend. But what's interesting about her friend is she suspects that her friend does not keep the laws of the sabbatical year properly, okay? You don't even need to know the technicalities of the sabbatical year every seven years. In Israel, the land is supposed to lie fallow. You're not supposed to hoard um, produce. You're not supposed to actively work the land. And I'm suspicious that my neighbor doesn't do this properly, okay? And what I want, the importance of this example is it's a suspicion that she is violating a Torah law, okay? That's the importance of the Shvi'i. I suspect that my friend does not keep Torah law the way I would keep Torah law. And the significance of it having to do with the produce in the sabbatical year is that she's cooking, we're all cooking bread, all the women cook bread together, okay? And the bread that she's cooking from the grain that she's cooking, I think is grain that has transgressed biblical law. Now she comes to me and she wants to borrow. Her sifter broke. She has a pro she wants to she asks me for some of the utensils to enable her to bake this bread that I believe is bread done in transgression. And so the halacha says that I am allowed to I can lend I I can lend her a fine sieve, a coarse sieve, I have no idea how to make bread, um, a hand mill and even an oven, right? Um, but I'm not allowed to actively sift or grind or help her. Okay, so I'm enabling her in her transgression. I'm just not actively doing the transgression with her, which is very, very interesting, right? It's a very fine line um, between I have my religious beliefs that I want to uphold, but I don't want to anger her and hurt her about her religious beliefs, right? Can you imagine this today? Like the non-observant person saying, like, you know, keeps a trade house and like, can I borrow your dishes? Oh, sure, go, go right ahead, right? But that's what the Mishnah says, and in a minute we're going to see that refrain that this was done in the interest of peace, right? I'm trying to, he, she's my friend. I want to help her. I don't want to hurt her. But on the other hand, I'm not going to actively do the transgression. So that's case number one. 
a woman, the woman doesn't have a name, and her friend, who I suspect violates the sabbatical year. Now we have case number two, and this uses some interesting categories of people. There is an eshet chaver and an eshet am ha'aretz. The wife of a chaver, the chaverim, it's like comrades in like communist Russia, the, the, the Tanaim called their little clique chaverim, comrades, friends. So if you're a chaver, you're in the, ra- you're in the rabbinic circle. Amei ha'aretz are the masses. They don't, they don't keep the laws of what? The in-group and out-group, but the difference between the in-group and the out-group is the chaverim keep all of rabbinic laws. And once again, the amei ha'aretz, I don't know if they keep the laws of purity and impurity right. I don't know if they really tithe their food. I don't know about their levels of observance, right? And there's, a, there's an interesting play here. Remember in the first case, we called the woman who violated the sabbatical year her chaverta, her friend. And now we have, right, the chaverim are the rabbinic group. And there's definitely a play on, on, the, on the, right? The chaverim are in groups and out groups, the men. They have their comrades and then the people who are out. But the women, their chaverim, their in-group, is, transgresses the boundaries of, of religious observance. And there's definitely a juxtaposition between the way the women are interacting and the way the men are interacting. I think letovat, you know, in, in positive praise of the woman. So I have a woman who, from a family that keeps law, and she's allowed to lend to a woman who doesn't keep. And here the issue is about ritual purity. Um, once again, I can lend to it a life of an arts, a fine sieve, a coarse sieve. And because here there's nothing actually wrong with the grain, she wouldn't violate the biblical law of the sabbatical year, but I'm just worried about her level of purity and impurity. They want to be on a certain level. So I can actually even winnow and grind and sift with her. I can help her. But when I reach the point, just accept this on face value, where the water where the water is added, according to the legal laws of, of purity and impurity, which no one can really understand. The moment that water gets added, that's when you can contract the impurity. So that, before that, the fact that she might be impure, and we're worried because this is bread. And bread, you have to take a bit and it's offered to the priest. So it has a level of kodshim. It has to be in a status of purity. Now, if this woman, my friend, doesn't keep the laws of purity so well, and she's going to touch it, she's going to contaminate, whatever the heck that word means, like make impure, right, this holy thing. I don't want to be a part of that. So when we're just sifting and grinding and everything's fine, the second we get the water, which like is the cootie contaminant, whatever, (laughs) then I have to step back. So same thing. I'm trying to find some type of balance between lending to her and even working with her, but not being active myself, okay? And once the water is added, I don't touch it. I'm not involved. And then the Mishnah says a reason why. Because because I don't want to strengthen the hands of people who transgress. Right? So there is a value judgment being made. I have my belief and I think that they're transgressing. And I'm not going to be actively involved and I'm not going to be part of it. But I am going to participate. We don't separate. We're not. We're friends. We even work together. Yes. In the first case, it said suspicion, and there I think that uh, it, I don't think that the law would be different if you knew. I, I don't think. The second case with the Amehar, we know. That's the category. This is a group of people who doesn't keep the law the same as us. 
Um, meaning if I knew for sure, for sure, maybe it gives a little bit of a Don Lakovsky with the pot, you know, I don't know what she's gonna do with it, right? I'm giving it, she could be using it for something good and she could use it for some bad, maybe. I didn't, the commentators don't latch on to that though as the, as the main motivation. Right, which is interesting. You might have thought your job as a Torah observant Jew would be to say, like, let me teach you the laws of the sabbatical year and really what you're doing is wrong and this is how you're supposed to do it. Right? We, you, I'm sure you've met traditional Jews that that is their attitude. Um, and not that I'm against education, but this mission doesn't seem to be your job is to educate and to change. Your job is to find a way to interact with her and stay friends with her and stay neighbors with her and find a balance between you preserving your own belief system and not hurting her feelings. Yes? It would appear that it's a euphemism. What do you mean by that? We're not making her impure. They're saying I can't touch you because I will be made impure. What do you mean by a euphemism? Well, a euphemism is a way of saying I can't help you do that as opposed to saying you're going to make me You see the euphemism there? I don't, I don't be meaning, if, I, if my whole goal was about myself, I would just say, when she came and knocked on my door and said, can I borrow your seed? I would say, I'm, I'm really sorry, I can't lend it to you. Right? He, the, I think the rabbi may be addressing it. I, I don't know, I'm just putting out. What do you mean, maybe addressing it? I think they're addressing it. They say, you can, you can lend it to her, and you can even no, do some of the In this last one, they're yeah. saying, you can't say to her, you're making me impure if I do that. What you can say to her is, I can't help you do that. Oh, I don't think they actively say that you can't say it. I don't know what you would say. I would assume it were... It says over here. Yeah. It says over here, you, oh, I can't, uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't strengthen your, whatever, whatever the words are over here. I think it, 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 the Mishnah is explaining to you, the reader, the internal reader, which is the observant person, why you have to stop at this point. And it's saying... Is this you're, not a euphemism? One does not strengthen the hand of those that transgress. Isn't that a euphemism for saying that if you touch it, you're impure? Isn't that a euphemism for? You may not yet be one of the. That's good. I, I don't know if that. I understood it as me tell Rabbi speaking to their internal group, saying that we're going to let you do the soitas, but we're not going to let you actively help them. I, 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 don't, I don't, we could agree to disagree. I'm happy to speak no. to you more after. But to me, it's a straightforward. It's not a euphemism. We don't want to strengthen people who transgress. Yes. I still have a few more things to say. So we'll take these two quick questions quickly. In both of the cases, the second woman is suspected of transgressing. What would be the halakha if we know? So that's what this gentleman over here just asked me. Yeah. Um, it, the second case, we're Ameha Aretz, we know, don't do the laws the same. So it's only the first case where we suspect. Maybe it's a little bit of a leeway to be nice, but the commentaries don't jump on it and say, if you know for sure, don't do it. So we are reading a nuance into it, but the halakha didn't pick up on that nuance so much. Yes, what's your question quickly? And then I wanted to say a few more things, and then I'm happy to talk. I'm reading too much yeah. Of a, um, I'm going to mispronounce 
Right. In the second example, correct. The assumption is they follow what their husbands do. Yeah. And that's how they're defined. I find that. Yes, it's true. But that's why I think that, 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 that what, there is an interesting play with the first example of calling it her chaverta. So you get the male's community and the female community. But let's look at the last example because I don't want anyone to have to stay longer than they do. I'm glad that everyone's interested in learning. I think the cases are fascinating. The last example, right, it says all these, these two examples about the women were done in the interest of peace. And then we have another, we come back to the non-Jew. So already you see, you already you see that um, the structure has been carefully edited because you, why not put these laws about the non-Jew at the end of the first Mishnah where we have the non-Jew, but it seems like I want two Mishnayot. I'm happy to talk to you more after. I'm happy with people who disagree with me. Um, you have two Mishnayot that both of them end with halachot, laws about the non-Jew. And here we have the same word, machzikim, to strengthen, that we just had earlier. It says, we are allowed to strengthen the hand of the non-Jew in the sabbatical year, but not the hand of Yisrael. Referring to if they're working the land, right? The non-Jew is allowed to work the land, right? So, so the idea that we, we have a Torah community that follows Torah laws is explicitly said that the non-Jew doesn't have to follow Torah law. The non-Jew in Israel can work the land during the sabbatical year, and in fact, we can aid them. Right? It's a very interesting question. What does it mean to aid? Would it be actively work the land? It sounds like it because the word machzikim before meant to actively do the action with them. Right? So for a Jew, we could do that. But for, uh, sorry, for a non-Jew, we could do that, but for a Jew, not. That's the first halakha. The second halakha, now we have the idea of shalom being reinforced. So we end this whole list of shalom by saying, we can be sho'alim b'shloman mipnei darkei shalom. We can, to be sho'el shalom means to say, mashlomech, how are you doing? Right? To ask about someone's shalom is to look at them, not in the kitsch way that we go, how you doing? And they say, fine, and we don't mean it. But like, are you, are you whole? Yeah. Are you at peace? Who are you? How are you? We can greet the non-Jew b'shalom. Now, shalom is another name of God. Um, and... Uh, the Gemara goes to the extreme of saying, even on their holidays, right, when they are worshiping Baal or some non-other God, we can greet them and say how you're doing. And the assumption is that they might even praise their God in, in responding to them. And so we have at the end of the, all these two Mishnayot, not just talking about Shalom, but speaking about Shalom of how you are. So I want to say one quick thing about this. And with that, I will end. Um, this concept of, of greeting people in halakha appears in two other places in the halakha, in Masechet Brachot. And I think it's a window into understanding what the rabbis think it means to greet someone. Um, in the laws in Brachot, when we are saying Shema, we learned this together, possibly, if you remember. Um, when you're saying Shema, right, the ultimate faith statement in God, the Mishnah tells us that what happens if someone comes in while you're saying Shema and greets you? or walks into the room and you think you're supposed to greet them. Now you might think, it's the Shema, I'm not gonna interrupt. But the fascinating thing in the Halakha is that you can interrupt at certain points. And Rabbi Yehuda's view in the Mishnah says, Bibrakim, if I'm at a paragraph break in the Shema, I can be meshiv shalom l'kol adam. Any person, any person who walks into the room and greets me, I can pause from making my belief statements in God and respond to them. Right? And Meshiv means they ask me how you're doing, and I say, I'm fine, thank you, how are you doing? Right? I, can re I can make a break in saying the Shema and do Shalom with another person, which is a crazy idea, 
What, what does that mean? And what's fascinating in Masachet Brachot is at the end of the Masachet Brachot, there is another Takana. We've been learning about all these Takanas. And, that, and this, is, this is a Takana that says, mm-hmm. The rabbis made a decree, and they actually learned this from Megillat Rut and Boaz, that when you greet another person, you, it can invoke God's name. Not like today where no one, everyone is always afraid of saying God's name in the Orthodox world, but Boaz actually says, to the Kotzrim, and they respond, and they say God's name. <coughs> and so we have these two very interesting halachot. When I'm saying Shema, I'm making a belief statement about God, I can break, make a break in that and respond and greet another person. And when I greet another person, I can invoke God's name, God's full name. And it seems to be what the Mishnah is coming to tell us, al right? is that they seem to be the flips. Saying Shema and greeting a person seems to be a, a part and parcel of the same thing. And I think the idea here is that if I'm making a faith statement about God and understanding God's presence in this world, and one of God's creations comes and talks to me, who is created in the image of the divine, and I totally ignore them, right? What happens if, if I'm saying Shema and someone greets me and I ignore them? That person's going to be hurt, upset, insulted, right? And so if you were to ignore someone while saying Shema, you don't really understand what it means to say Shema. You don't understand what it means that the God is one in this world. And so you're allowed to make a break and respond to any person. The earlier parts in the Mishnah talk about what if it's someone you fear, what if it's someone you honor, but this part it says, kol adam, any human being, you can make a break. And that is why when I meet another person and I want to really look at them and see who they are and how they are, and I see the tzelem Elohim, the, the divine spark that is within that unique individual, that encounter with a, an aspect of God I, invokes God's name in this world. The presence of God is felt in this world. And so I tell you this, that you should understand. When the Mishnah ends by telling you that you can be Shoel Shalom of non-Jews, in the interest of Shalom, in the interest of God's peace in this world, it is, I believe, part of reinforcing the statement that these two Mishnayot have been saying, is that all human beings are created in the image of the divine. It doesn't matter if they're observant. It doesn't matter if they're poor, it doesn't matter if they're disabled, and it doesn't matter if they're non-Jews. Every single one of these people is deserving of our respect because they are creatures created in the image of a divine and is deserving of, of us thinking about how they're going to feel and how we can find ways to live with other people in peace. They might be people that are different than us. They might be people that think differently than us. And they might be people that believe differently than us. Or they might be our closest neighbors and friends and people that we think believe exactly the same way. But it doesn't matter. Every single person is deserving of my attitude to be. I'm going to try to interact with them with shalom. And to me, that is the beautiful message of this Mishnah. I hope. Oh, I have to say one last thing. One last thing. What's crazy, right? That was, that was the beautiful sea. You felt like I should end on that note, right? But what's crazy that I have to say is, like many Mishnayot, this Mishnah had a machloket, had a dispute. Remember Rabbi Yossi? He disagreed, he disagreed, he disagreed. Now you might say, Rachel, that's obvious. Anyone who reads Mishnah, there's always people who disagree. But it's fascinating, right? In this incredible Mishnah that was talking about shalom, 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 we have a disagreement, right? It's so interesting. So I think that's another level to this thing, meaning to treat another person with shalom and to treat another person with respect does not mean that you have to agree with everything they say. 
It does not mean that you have to give up on your ideals and your belief system and what you think is right. Right? No one said that you should help the, you know, you should also transgress. And it doesn't mean that you have to just be yes, 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 whatever you say, I don't want to cause an argument. I think part of what the mission is trying to say to us is that you have to treat other people with respect and you have to understand their perspective and their feelings, but you could also disagree with them. And, and the real catch, and this is the problem in the Jewish world, is to find a way to build a community that includes everyone and enables you to respect another people, but also enables you to find a way to respectfully disagree and to be into dialogue and, commu and communication with the other. Hello, uh, Hello, Yeah. Thank you all for coming out for our study session. I'm happy to stand for questions or talk a little bit. Just uh, we're officially going to go over to this brief. We've gone late, but uh, you can stay a little bit. And hopefully you'll come back to our community again now that you know where we are. So we're going to be Los Angeles Thank you guys for coming out. Yeah.